Welcome to the next edition of Fixed Interest Series. My name is Shali Shetty and I'm a Managing Director and Head of Americas in Asia Sovereign Ratings at Fitch. Today I'm joined by Todd Martinez, Senior Director and Co-Head of the Americas, and Jeremy Zook, Director in the Asia Sovereign Team. Today we are going to discuss about the much-talked-about new opportunities in emerging markets from the expected trend of supply-side diversification away from China. Now, as all of you know, global firms are rethinking about their supply chains and future investments in the context of geopolitical and concentration risks. We recently dug deeper into this topic and published a special report on it, which is available on our website. As you all know, nearshoring, friendshoring, and reshoring are common buzzwords these days, even though they are fairly distinct concepts. Now, just by background, nearshoring refers to moving production closer to the final market and is generally talked about in the context of production and capacity expansion in Mexico, Central, and South America to meet the U.S. external demand, or for that matter, relocating production to European emerging market countries to cater to European external demand. Friendshoring refers to the movement of production capacity into countries with similar political alignments and shared values. This shift is also referred to as geofragmentation by the IMF. Finally, reshoring, also called onshoring, refers to the relocating productive capacity to the market where the final product is sold. This will actually have very little impact on emerging markets, as this mostly occurs in developed economies. So with that, let me turn to you, Todd and Jeremy. Beginning with you, Todd, what is behind the relocation of global supply chains and production? And have we seen this reflected in recent trade data or in foreign direct investment flows? Thanks, Shelley. So these trends are coming on the heels of some big shocks over the past few years that have adversely affected companies. There was the pandemic and all the shutdowns, a post-pandemic boom in goods demand that led to some severe supply chain bottlenecks, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, U.S.-China trade and geopolitical tensions, and then plenty of issues in global shipping. A few years ago, there was a jump in shipping costs, and right now we're seeing some pretty big snarls at the Panama Canal and at the Suez Canal. So these shocks have really laid bare the risks that companies face in their supply chains and given them incentives to make some changes no longer produce things in the places where it's cheapest to do so, but produce them in places that are more isolated from these sorts of risks. So it's led to two trends, so-called nearshoring, moving production closer to final sale, and then friendshoring, moving production to politically aligned countries. So having defined these, how big are these trends? Uh, well, so far the trade data do seem to be showing a nearshoring, friendshoring trend. In the U.S., the world's biggest import market, China has lost share in the past few years, whereas countries like Mexico and Vietnam have gained market share, and Mexico's even overtaken China as the U.S.'s biggest import market. Uh, the FDI data, on the other hand, don't seem to be telling the near-shoring story yet. You know, in a lot of these countries, FDI isn't any higher than its historic average. So, you know, how do we reconcile that? I think what the data are telling us so far is that nearshoring is in an, an initial phase, where companies are sourcing more goods from nearshoring countries, and some domestic companies are investing more to expand their capacity and meet that demand, but foreign companies aren't massively building up their production capacity in nearshoring countries yet. 
That said, there have been some big announcements in recent years. So, you know, we eventually expect the FDI data to be to be catching up with with the trade data and showing the the near showing story as well. Now, Jeremy, let me bring you in the discussion. Uh, you cover China for Fitch. So let me ask you, how simple will it be for foreign firms to move production away from China into other emerging markets? And what are China's competitive advantages that could diminish the nearshoring or friendshoring potential? Thanks, Shelley. That's a great question. We think it will be a bit challenging for foreign firms to ship production out of China on a large scale, and so we believe this process will be rather gradual. If we look at the current global trade landscape, China is still by far the largest global exporter, accounting for about 18% of total global exports at the end of 2022. And this share has been growing gradually over the past decade, despite rising trade tensions with the U.S. So very clearly, China still plays a dominant role as a global manufacturing hub. That said, there are some clear shifts underway with China's market share declining just a bit in 2023. This is particularly the case in the US where Mexico has actually just surpassed China's share in US imports. China has also seen a significant fall in inward FDI of late. While we expect this to recover somewhat, a large portion of that fall in FDI is likely structural in nature. Uh, regardless though, I think it's quite important to remember that Chinese firms still play a large role in global manufacturing supply chains in their own right. And China still has, in our view, a large number of comparative advantages in manufacturing. First, China has an extensive domestic manufacturing ecosystem with significant up and downstream production linkages that have been built up over the past couple decades, and this will be quite difficult to replicate quickly elsewhere. China's infrastructure and human capital are also very well developed, and this underpins a lot of this manufacturing depth. Second, China has a, a very large domestic consumption market, which makes it as a, a quite attractive manufacturing base. And finally, and leaving aside questions on fair trade practices, the, the Chinese government has made significant investments in high-tech industries, such as electric vehicles and batteries, which gives it a bit of a leg up in some of these emerging sectors. Now, Todd, Jeremy has just mentioned some of China's trends, and the discussion so far suggests that nearshoring or friendshoring could be a gradual process. So still the question is, which countries would benefit and be the potential winners from nearshoring? What do you think? So at the top of any list of countries that could benefit from nearshoring is Mexico. Mexico is a close, long-standing ally of the U.S., regardless of who the presidents are. It has close supply chain linkages already with the U.S. after several decades of the NAFTA-USMCA free trade agreement. And there's evidence that nearshoring is already occurring. Mexico's share in the U.S. import market has been rising. There's record high occupancy rates in the industrial parks in the north and labor shortages in those areas as well. Elsewhere in the Americas, Central America could also benefit. Like Mexico, it also has a free trade agreement with the U.S. called CAFTA-DR. But unlike Mexico, these are smaller countries whose manufacturing sectors are not quite as sophisticated or integrated with the U.S., uh, the country probably best positioned to benefit is Costa Rica, where there's already a fairly sophisticated manufacturing base focused on things like medical devices. And other Central American countries could benefit, but we think they might be at more of a disadvantage because of governance issues 
Uh, we think this could be a disadvantage in an increasingly ESG-focused world. And then briefly on Europe, I think Poland and Romania are two of the countries best positioned to benefit. Poland's already quite integrated into European supply chains. Um, and, you know, this has already led to quite strong inward FTI flows that could be reinforced by the nearshoring trend. And Romania is at a much earlier stage in this process, not yet a huge FTI recipient. But, you know, this could change given its attractive labor costs, energy resources and other advantages it has. Now, back to you, Jeremy. Asia is also talked about in the context of French shoring. So which countries in APAC will benefit from French shoring? And in your opinion, what will be the main obstacles in these countries to maximize this opportunity? Now, in Asia, we see a large number of potential beneficiaries. But in this report, we highlight Vietnam and India in particular as holding clear potential. Vietnam, of course, is already uh, quite a success story with robust FDI inflows over much of the last decade. This has driven strong GDP growth as well as rating momentum, including our recent sovereign rating upgrade to double B plus in December. And these trends in Vietnam predate even the intensification of the US-China trade war as firms sought to move out of China in search of lower labor costs. Vietnam started on the lower end of the value chain, seeing market gains in things like textiles and apparel goods, but it has moved up the value chain and is now taking larger shares in things like electronic products, particularly mobile, mobile phones. There are a number of things that we think make Vietnam quite appealing for FDI. The government has followed somewhat in China's footsteps in creating an attractive regulatory and tax environment for foreign firms. Vietnam also has a relatively low cost and highly skilled labor force as a result of the country's investments in human capital. And finally, the country has joined a wide range of free trade agreements, opening its market to a number of different countries. There are clear constraints, however. Uh, first, just in terms of the size of the labor force and the domestic market, it just can't compete with China uh, on that scale. And infrastructure capacity also seems to be pushing its limits a bit, especially in the electricity sector. Uh, but the government does seem to be refocusing its efforts now um, towards enhancing its infrastructure development. India is another country we believe that has significant potential, though it is at a, a much more nascent stage. Uh, India is really the only country globally with a large and rapidly growing consumer market, uh, as well as a vast labor force that really rivals China in terms of size. Foreign firms are likely to be attracted to that large domestic market uh, with supply chain considerations coming secondary. The government does appear uh, genuinely focused on positioning India as a, a key China plus one destination through its substantial infrastructure push and uh, it, its production linked incentive scheme to try to bring in foreign investment. The biggest success so far in, in that regard is Foxconn shifting um, some of its iPhone assembly to India. And over time, we think these moves could help build up uh, domestic supply chains and, and manufacturing as well. But there are a number of factors that constrain these ambitions in our view. Uh, India does have a relatively challenging business environment, particularly in terms of 
land and labor regulations. It has a history of protectionist tendencies, and there are key infrastructure and skill shortfalls uh, for many manufacturing industries. That being said, there does seem to be a concerted effort by the government to uh, improve the business environment, uh, expand free trade agreements, and sharply boost uh, its infrastructure capacity. Uh, state governments as well are undertaking land and labor reforms to attract manufacturing. Uh, so there are positive signs, but it will be a very gradual process uh, and, and take a lot of time to build up uh, a domestic manufacturing ecosystem. And now finally, Todd, uh, what do these new opportunities mean for possible positive rating actions? Uh, how could nearshoring or friendshoring improve credit profiles of emerging markets benefiting from these trends? So I think it's fair to say that just like nearshoring and friendshoring are big opportunities for emerging markets to achieve development, they could also be big opportunities to achieve improvement in their sovereign ratings. But overall, I think we're probably going to need to wait to see nearshoring show up in the hard economic data in some fashion before thinking of, of taking an upgrade based on it. This doesn't necessarily mean we're going to need to wait for huge increases in real GDP or exports but probably at least signs of increased FDI and, and investment, you know, signs that efforts are underway to enable the countries to take advantage of this opportunity and achieve higher growth potential. Uh, that might take some time to occur, but, you know, even if nearshoring on its own might not be enough to drive an immediate ratings improvement, it could already be a contributing factor in some places where other credit metrics are also improving. You know, two examples in the past year of countries that we've upgraded are Costa Rica and Vietnam. And in both cases, you know, robust growth performance was part of the rationale for those upgrades. And there's a case to be made that nearshoring and friendshoring were, were part of that positive growth story. Thanks a lot, Todd and Jeremy, for your insights. And thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out the special report on our website, FitchRatings.com. Hope you will join us in the next Fixed Interest podcast. Thank you.